0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Mighty God, I pray that you would humble sinners and exalt the Savior by the power and grace of your Holy Spirit for the sake of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Amen. You may be seated. Over the course of history, Certain people embody a virtue to the extent that their name becomes synonymous with that virtue. They become a symbol of that virtue. For brilliance, there's Albert Einstein. For courage, Winston Churchill. For elegance, Princess Diana. For service, Mother Teresa. For eloquence, Martin Luther King. For dominance, Michael Air Jordan. For style, Andrew Pearson. And for beauty, Lauren Cole. That's my wife, if you're new. <laughs> in the Bible, there are characters that take on a similar air. For wisdom, there was Solomon. For obedience, the Virgin Mary. And for patience and perseverance, there was Job. And so in Romans 4, Paul offers up Abraham, the father of Israel, as the symbol and the paragon of faith. Romans 4 falls right in between Romans 3 and Romans 5, which are two of the hallmark chapters for justification by grace through faith, the core of the Christian message. In Romans 3, Paul declares that r- the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Romans five, he writes, "God shows His love for us in this: that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, since therefore we have now been justified by His blood. Much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God." Romans three and Romans five are the main street of the gospel of grace. Now in between these two chapters, which are filled with theological propositions about the gospel, stands Abraham, the subject of Romans 4. To further reinforce the message that we receive the promised salvation of God by faith, Paul plants Abraham, the symbol of faith, in the Old Testament. It was Abraham who believed the promises of God in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. It was Abraham who trusted God and was counted righteous. It was Abraham who trusted God to bless him with a son, and and Isaac was delivered. And it was Abraham who trusted God to the extent that he was willing to bring forth his son Isaac as a sacrifice, believing that God could raise him from the dead. For Jews, Abraham and faith were synonymous. And Paul is demonstrating to both his Jewish and Gentile audience that faith is the way that we relate to God. In the Old Covenant, the Jews receive the promise and the grace of God by faith. And in the new covenant is the same. We receive the promises and the grace of God and the gospel by faith. So in these toughest of times, it can be very difficult to trust God. For many people, the last year has felt like an endless cycle of being kicked to the ground. And every time you try to stand up, you're kicked in the ribs once again. And it is hard to trust God when you feel like every time you lift up your head, all you can see is the gutter. So today, for our own edification, we will look at Abraham as the symbol of faith in two parts. First, faith as the better story and faith as the better way. It is the better story and the better way that leads us to the hope and the peace of Christ. So first, faith as the better story. The key word in Romans 4 is promise. Paul uses the word promise four different times in the second half of Romans 4. He uses the word promise 26 different times in his epistles. And when Paul uses the word promise, it means a declaration of a guarantee from God that he will bless his people through grace. When God came to Abraham back in Genesis, he made a threefold promise at the spiritual level. First, he promised Abraham a personal relationship with the living God, the maker of heaven and earth. In Genesis 17, 7, when God promises to be your God, this is a promise of intimate fellowship with the Lord. Secondly, God offered him a solution to death. He offered him eternal life. When Abraham believed God's promise and was counted as righteous, he gained right relationship with God for eternity. And thirdly, promises, uh, Thirdly, God promises Abraham a life of purpose. Paul repeatedly refers to Abraham as the father of many nations. In God's covenant with him, the Lord promises Abraham that all nations will be blessed through his life and through his descendants. And so in essence, he is promising Abraham a life of eternal impact. So God essentially, comes to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I have a better story for your life. I have a better promise. It's the story of fellowship with God and of everlasting life and of a life of eternal purpose. And Abraham traded in his old life, and he got on board with the author and the promise of God being the author of his story. Now, this word promise functions at two levels in Romans 4. At one level, he's talking about the promise that God made to Abraham. And at the other level, he refers to the promise that God makes to us in the gospel. We all naturally like to be the author of our own story. And in particular, we believe that if we can have things our way, that we can write the happy ending to our story in particular. For teenagers, the happy ending looks like this. Make good grades, have good extracurriculars, get into a good college. Get a good job, get married, live happily ever after. For middle-aged adults like myself, the happy ending looks like this. Pay off the mortgage, pay for kids' college education, have plenty of money in your 401 k have a couple of kids, have a stable marriage, and ultimately see those kids be self-sufficient and not disgracing the family name. And if we believe if we can just work hard enough and exert enough determination, and people can get on board with our agenda, then we can make the happy ending come true. Well, in the same way that God spoke to Abraham, every time the gospel is pronounced to us, the Lord says, I have a better story for your life. And it has nothing to do with material comfort or financial stability. It's the story of a satisfied soul in Christ. It's the story of no fear and death. And it's the story of a life of purpose that truly matters even beyond your own life. It is the story of a better life found in Christ. Now, this news of a better story, it comes to us through the gospel, the message of God's love for sinners through Christ. And the gospel brings us into this better life found in relationship with God. So faith is first knowing and believing the content of the promise of God, the content of the gospel. And it is putting down the pen and paper of writing your own story and knowing that God is the better author of your life. Well, the main thrust of Paul's argument in the second half of Romans 4, however, is is that walking into this better story is utterly impossible except through the better way, which is the way of faith so that takes us to our second point, faith as the better way. When the gospel message comes to us with a spirit and it truly hits our heart, there is a natural reaction. And that natural reaction is faith. But I hesitate to use that word because of the way that so often we tend to misunderstand the word faith. Uh, when I was in college, I, I don't think that I really understood the word faith until my junior year, when I went on a random retreat to Lake Junaluska in Waynesville, North Carolina, and the speaker at the beginning of the first talk was, was teaching on Romans. And he said, faith is shifting the burden of your life onto the shoulders of Jesus. And, that's, and a light came on for me. Very often, people think of faith as being religious or checking the boxes on certain doctrines or beliefs Or they think of faith as being a morally good person within the context of a religious code. But at the core, faith is depending on God. Faith is letting Jesus carry the burden of your life. And to this end, if you're a person who is intrigued by Christianity, but you're not quite in, not quite all in, because of philosophical or ethical or doctrinal matters that you just can't get past, I would give you this encouragement to start faith by depending on God with the challenges and the issues in your life, particularly your salvation. And I promise you, the more you trust God and the more you get to know Jesus, the more the doctrinal and ethical and philosophical things start to fall into place. Now, what we will see as we get into this technical section is that Paul isn't just arguing that faith is the better way. He is saying it is the only way to relate to the Lord, Paul makes abundantly clear that we cannot enter into the promises of the gospel and the promises of a better story through effort and through control. He writes in verse 10, The promise did not come through law, but through the righteousness of faith. In order to enter into God's story, which involves fellowship with him, a person must be righteous. And what does it mean to be righteous? It means you have to be absolutely perfect, sinless, without flaw, So, our sin naturally disqualifies all of us from the better story that God has for us. And as a result, in verse 14, Paul says, For it is, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. He's essentially saying, Yes, there's a better story, and yes, there is a better promise, but it is completely worthless if it depends upon human effort, an insurmountable barrier stands between us and this better story that God has for us, and that barrier is sin. Consequently, Paul says in verse 15 that the law, the moral code, handed down to Moses, in one sense functions to make us aware of just how insurmountable this barrier is. Paul Paul writes, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. In other words, without the law, we would not know that we are unrighteous. And, and therefore dependent upon the grace of Christ. So Paul concludes in verse 16 by saying, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Human effort is totally inadequate for the problem of righteousness, and the problem of sin. It is a God-sized problem. The righteousness that is necessary for salvation and for fellowship with God can only come to us as a gift of grace through Christ that we receive by faith. So going back to that earlier definition of faith as putting the weight of your life on the shoulders of Jesus, saving faith is putting the weight of your need for righteousness on the shoulders of Christ. Faith is repenting from believing and having confidence in our moral and religious performance and instead putting our confidence in the performance of Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. Faith is depending on the mercy and the grace of God. So Paul solidifies this point overall through his illustration of Abraham as the symbol of faith. When God told Abraham that he would have a son, Abraham was very clear that this was humanly impossible. Abraham was up in his 90s, and Sarah was rounding third base as well. In the face of this impossibility, Abraham shifted his burden to God. And through that shift in burden, through that confidence in the Lord, the Lord counted him as righteous. So knowing and believing in the promises of God, knowing the content of the gospel is the first end of faith. But the second end of faith is putting your weight on the Lord. It is trusting the grace of Christ. So understanding faith in this way does not just apply to your initial salvation. It becomes the rhythm of the Christian life. There is this rhythm where we experience stress and pressure of trying to do life on our own. And then there is this shift and rhythm of putting our confidence, putting our weight on the shoulders of Jesus. And the relief and the peace of letting Christ carry the burden of our life is what makes faith the better way. Now, So much of the stress in our life involves our attempt to write our own story and the burden of trying to pull it off. It is exhausting. We have a vision of what we think will make us happy, and we are constantly working to see it through. And things get even worse when we try to write the story of other people's lives. There is a great temptation as a parent, I feel it myself, that you have this idea of the narrative that your child should inhabit, and we manipulate and we work to try to push our children into that narrative. And things get very, very dysfunctional when the writing of our own story involves trying to write the story of someone else. Now, when I was a child, I dreamed, don't laugh too hard, I dreamed that I would be an NBA basketball player or a major league baseball player. And if you've ever seen me run, then you should laugh really hard at both of those. (laughs) Um, I, I really didn't dream or expect that I would be a pastor at a church or that I'd live in Birmingham um, or that I would have a season of clinical depression or that I would have four children or that I'd marry a former missionary um, or that I would go to seminary or that I would have a child die. Uh, but the story that God had for me is so much better than the story I was trying to write for myself as a young person. And it has nothing to do with circumstances. It has everything to do with the joy I experience in personal relationship with Christ. And the peace and the rest I feel of knowing that Jesus can carry the burden of my life. And the hope I feel knowing that God has the future in his hands. And the sense of purpose I have as a person who has been transferred into the kingdom of God. To enjoy the promises of God, the promises of hope, peace, joy, and purpose, we need to put down the pen. We need to hand the blank sheet of our life over to the Lord, and we need to let him be the author. We need to let him be the one who carries us forward. Now, the movie, Saving Mr. Banks, focuses on the real-life story of Walt Disney acquiring the movie rights to the book series Mary Poppins. The author, pen name Pamela Travers, had rejected dozens and dozens of authors, to buy the rights and to adapt her books into a movie. But alas, Ms. Travers had run out of money, and she had no option but to sell the rights. And So on one level, the movie is about Ms. Travers' constant interference and resistance to letting Disney write the script. Her micromanagement nearly sabotages the project again and again and again. But on another level, you learn that Mary Poppins is a drama about Miss La- Miss Travers' childhood. You learn that the main character George Banks was inspired by Travers' father, whom she loved dearly, but who was an alcoholic, and his alcoholism publicly humiliated the family many many times, and his drinking led to his premature death when Miss Travers was just a child. You see that through the book Mary Poppins. Ms. Travers was trying to write a new and better story for her childhood and a new and better story for her father. The climax of the movie comes when Walt Disney gives Ms. Travers this assurance. He said, George Banks and all that he stands for will be saved. Maybe not in life, but in imagination. Because that's what storytellers do. We restore order with imagination. We instill hope again and again and again. Know that God has a better story for your life. And it is a real story. But you do have to trust him. You do have to let him write the story. You do have to let him have control. But oh, what a peaceful and hopeful story God has for you in Christ. Let us pray. Almighty God, we pray that you would glorify yourself in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.com.